This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I began self-work to try to extend the walls of my practice. I had met in one little room for over 25 years talking with individuals and couples. I wanted to reach out to those of you who might already be interested in therapy or psychological issues. To those of you, and there are probably many of you, who've been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or some mental illness and you're looking for answers. And even to those who might never consider darkening the door of a therapist, but are just curious enough to listen to a podcast. There's so much misinformation and actual ignorance about what therapy is, and so I want to give you a taste of at least my version of therapy or therapeutic talk, and then you can make your own decision. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about depression. Today, we're going to be talking about the voice of depression that actually can lead you to loneliness and even despair. I know how real these voices can seem. I know how hard these beliefs are to fight off, especially when your mind isn't helping you. But as I heard Esther Perel in her fairly new podcast, Where Should We Begin, say the other day, and by the way, it's really good, attitude is everything. Attitude about medical illness, attitude toward even your own mental illness. Do you become your illness or do you see it as not you and do your best to manage it? That's huge. We'll go through seven statements that I hear regularly from people who are depressed that prevent those very people from risking more engagement. It's almost as if they kind of hold those beliefs to them because getting out of bed or reaching out to others can be so difficult. Sometimes I tell people, It's like if you have a broken leg and your orthopedic person says, go out and run on it, you'll feel better. When you're trying to heal from depression, you're trying to use a mind that sometimes can feel very broken and actually be very broken. But the cycle of irrational thought and depression is strong. So today we're going to look at those irrational beliefs. And just so you know what's to come in the next few weeks, we'll also cover conditional love, worry and its role in depression, and when self-sacrifice turns into a victim mentality. I can't believe it, but that will take us through episode 150. A regular feature of self-work is a listener email, which I answer and love answering. Today, it's from a woman who struggled with obesity most of her life, and she has won that battle. But she's left with the scars of some loose, sagging skin, and she's now met someone with whom she wants a really vital sexual relationship. And she can't trust that he really loves her body just the way it is. So let's sit back and relax. I hope you're excited about the next few weeks. I am. Glad you're here. I love Andrew Solomon's quote from his book, The Noonday Demon. The opposite of depression isn't happiness, but vitality. Depression is really evident when people who see me begin opening up in therapy about what has kept them away from others, what thinking is behind their isolation or apathy or lack of vitality in living. I mean this very kindly when I say it. 
Depression is inherently self-focused by its very nature. You're fighting what I've termed a black hole that's within you, meaning the energy of depression can suck you in. It's not a choice. It simply is. So finding a way to challenge your attitude or your thinking can be very helpful in beginning to push back that veil or even fog that can engulf you when you're depressed. Your engaging with life may need to start very small, but it needs to begin. We're going to be talking about seven self-statements or beliefs that can lead to lack of engagement. They're things you actually tell yourself and believe. So let's challenge them. Here they are just in a list, and then we'll go over each one specifically. I can't be around other people. They just make me mad. Number two, no one would understand. Number three, I'm burdening others if I talk about my pain. Here's four, people have disappointed me, and I just can't be hurt anymore. Number five, people don't want to hear that I'm depressed again. Number six, I don't care anymore. And number seven, if I have to ask for something, it's just not the same. Gosh, just hearing those statements all in a row can cause my own energy to be sapped, and I've got a fair amount of energy. And they can all lead to intense loneliness. So let's take them one by one. First, I can't be around other people. They just make me mad. Depression doesn't always look like melancholy. In fact, that's only one presentation of depression. There's agitated or anxious depression. There's depression that looks like the perfect-looking life, or what I term perfectly hidden depression. And then there's depression that leads people to just be pissed off about everything, or to be incredibly irritable. Or you may even look for something to prove to yourself that you're justified in being alone. We all usually have one primary feeling that we're more comfortable with feeling. Some people stay afraid all the time, some sad, and some angry, especially men. Men, when they're depressed, can look more angry than sad, although not always. And then there's some other typically male, but also could be female, features of their depression. I'm quoting the Mayo Clinic. There's escapist behaviors such as spending a lot of time at work or on sports, physical symptoms such as headaches, stomach problems and pain, severe problems or moderate problems with alcohol or drug use, controlling violent or abusive behavior, irritability or inappropriate anger, and risky behavior such as reckless driving. So let's look at the message you're sending to others through any or all of these behaviors if you get drunk a lot or you're violent, or you just have these anger outbursts. The message is, go away, or I'll hurt you or myself. Now again, that can be depression talking. So realizing where that anger comes from can be vital. I worked with a man quite a while ago now. I saw him where I volunteer at a free medical clinic, and the secretaries there, or the intake people, had said that he was homicidal, And when I called him, I said, my gosh, the notes here say you're homicidal. He started laughing. He said, well, sometimes I tell my wife I want to kill her, but I really don't. Now, obviously, I'm not making a joke of people who are actually abusive, but he was quite a jolly guy. But he wasn't always jolly. He had a habit of being violent toward others, meaning he would get mad. And he lived out in the country, and he would get a big board and come after them. It was impulsive, it was aggressive, and it was violent. Well, when we worked together, I learned that his grandfather had been horribly abusive to him. And what was his belief? I'll never let anyone be in control of me again. And so, when he felt out of control, 
he aggressed. He was violent. He started crying when he realized this and said, oh my gosh, I never realized that that's where that anger came from. And that awareness as well as appropriate medication and talking in therapy helped him get rid of that behavior. So if you have the belief, I can't be around other people, they just make me mad, maybe you ought to look to see where that mad comes from. The second belief, no one would understand. There's no way to argue with this in some ways. If I haven't been through exactly what you're going through, maybe I don't understand completely. But others can be compassionate and caring. You know, as I think about this, perhaps this is really a rationalization. Because if you reach out and someone does understand and give you support, then the ball is in your court. The belief of no one would understand keeps you able to not try. Because trying can feel so much more risky than not trying. Not engaging. Because engaging is more work. Loneliness may be comforting in a way because you don't have to risk. But of course, loneliness also hurts. The third belief that keeps you lonely, I'm burdening others if I talk about my pain. You know, I hear this a lot. These folks talk about feeling isolated and lonely, like they're carrying their own burden, but then convince themselves that if they talk about it, someone else will take it on like it's theirs. And perhaps that is what they do themselves with other people. So it would seem to them that others would do the same thing. What that says to me is that the boundaries between the two people aren't clear, maybe not even healthy. If you also have the habit yourself of taking on others' pain or burden or struggle when you listen to them, again, it goes to show that that's what you would expect. However, that's not necessarily the most healthy way to function. You know, I've had that experience. When I'm angry about something and call someone, then they get angrier than me, and I find myself calming them down. But the belief that I'm burdening others if I talk about my pain is often an excuse. People will care. They will listen. But they don't necessarily take it on. It doesn't ruin their day. They're not going to necessarily stay worried about you because there's a clear boundary between you and them. Let's use this example, which I often use in therapy. Someone walks up to a park bench. On the left of the bench is someone else gently wiping a tear or two from their eyes. On the right is someone sobbing and looking completely distraught. Which one will most people go to to comfort, especially if they have good boundaries? People who don't have necessarily good boundaries will often say the distraught one. Now, again, this isn't like triage where there's an emergency going on where you would probably go to the person who looked most in need. Instead, the people that will approach the distraught one are often people who need to help or even control whose personal boundaries aren't quite so clear, or, frankly, they have a personal agenda. They're attracted to those whose life is out of control. Instead, most people will sense that the person on the left has the skills to handle their own pain, but could use a friendly face, not a savior. Perhaps some of you who feel very empathic toward others bristle at this. My empathy, my ability to feel what others are feeling, would lead me to the person on the right. And I get that. And yet, when that happens too often, 
even someone who's an empath or feels like they're an empath, can become mired down into what is someone else's pain. The ability to help is actually about caring, but having a boundary. It's like teaching someone to fish instead of handing them a fish. So if you tell yourself, I'm burdening others if I talk about my pain, you're really assuming that they don't have good boundaries. People who do will be there for you to talk, but they also believe or assume that you've got what it takes to handle this. And actually, it can feel good to hear that message. Here's another belief. People have disappointed me and I just can't be hurt anymore. Now again, of course, this may be very true if you've been disappointed or hurt, that you've been hurt a lot and you don't want to be hurt again. Again, it's one of those beliefs that's hard to dispute, but you're making the assumption that others will hurt you, that there's no one that's capable of loving you and caring for you well, that everyone is a potential abuser, and that's not rational thinking. When we're in relationship with anyone, really, there's a potential for hurt, and there's a potential for kindness and laughter and caring and joy. Maybe the thing to learn if you feel like everyone has hurt you Have you been choosing people who aren't givers or who are motivated by greed or jealousy or control? Maybe if you choose differently, you don't have to be alone and you won't be hurt. Here's the next one. People don't want to hear that I'm depressed again. (laughs) Once again, there could be some truth in this. Chronic illness, whether it's mental or medical, is much harder for some to handle than others. Personally, I think it's because it scares people. They don't want to believe that their own life could get out of control, so they project onto you that you must be doing something to make your chronic illness come back. However, that's not true, and that's not the nature of chronic problems. Yes, you have to manage them, or they can get out of control. But sometimes, you're managing them quite well, and bam, the problem arises again. Remember, your chronic Depression coming back or an, another stage of your bipolar illness doesn't mean that you failed. It means it's chronic. And there are those in your world, if you look for them, that can handle hearing about it and give you support. It's true, others may fade away, but those that can support you are right there. You just have to look for them. The next to last belief is I don't care anymore. I've often told couples that come in for therapy that I'd much rather them come in fighting and even swinging than I would hearing, I don't really care enough to fight. It's apathy, resignation, and I feel the same way about when it presents in depression. Apathy can alienate others who don't know how to respond to just nothing. They can't help you fight. They can't support a battle that's been given up. And so they disappear. I encourage you to open up instead about how hard it is to keep fighting, to keep hoping. That's a battle we all can understand. But you do have to reach out. You do have to care about yourself and about your impact on other people. And the last belief, if I have to ask for it, it's not the same. I also hear this one a lot. Let's say you're lonely. And it's been a couple of days since anyone has checked in. So you sit and wait. You're running your own test to see who really cares about you. They don't know it's a test. 
Only you do. That can be such a destructive way of thinking. Because if they finally do call, again, it's only been two days, you're resentful. And somehow that resentment will come out in your behavior, maybe passively, but it will come out. You know, we teach our kids to include things on their birthday list or their Christmas or Hanukkah list, things they really want or need. And when they receive those gifts, they feel listened to and loved. And we say, oh, you must have been really good, or this is a special birthday. But somehow when we grow up, we forget to ask. We want people to have a crystal ball into who we are and what we need. And you know, that's not going to happen. Of course, it's lovely when someone you love or someone who loves you or even a work colleague remembers something you like and brings it to you or gives it to you. That feels very special. But if you're testing others all the time, seeing if they remember, having them prove to you that they care, that's not fair. And it's only going to make you unhappy and complicate your relationships. I understand that irrational beliefs in depression are hard to turn around. But these seven are some of the most destructive. So I hope that you can look at your own thoughts if you're struggling with depression or low self-worth. And remember, not everyone will be there for you, but there are people who want to understand and who want to give. You just have to give them a chance. The listener email for today is from someone who has been struggling with obesity all her life and now wants a sexual relationship with someone she's really starting to care deeply about. Here we go. In my early 20s, I started to diet and began exercising regularly, eventually losing half of my body weight, reaching 180 pounds at my thinnest. The weight loss journey was fraught with developing an eating disorder, depression, and horrible self-esteem issues. I'm 41 now, and over the course of the last 20 years, I put some of the weight back on. My body is an easy keeper, and it requires constant strict dieting and exercise to not gain weight. This past year, I returned my focus to it and lost most of what I'd regained. I'm happy with my current weight overall, and I don't have much to complain about. I'm healthy and fit. That said, the weight loss left me with a lot of loose, sagging skin. It isn't the worst I've seen, but it's enough to be very noticeable when I'm naked. My thighs, stomach, and butt were the worst affected. If I could afford plastic surgery, I would benefit significantly. But I can't, so I live with it. I've been single most of my life, partners off and on, but rarely serious. Just a handful of long-term relationships. I struggled with a lot of issues, and that was seen in the relationships I chose. But I've put a lot of work into myself, as much into my mental health as my physical I find myself in a place where I can say that I'm passingly emotionally mature and able to effectively deal with and communicate my feelings and needs. I'm very proud of the stable adult that I've become, and so I decided to look for a partner. I've met a wonderful man. He's kind, generous, and intelligent. We share a similar curiosity, in particular about how our internal lives process and how we function in the world. He shares my dedication to fitness and a healthy lifestyle. We're a good fit, and I'm optimistic about our chance to be successful. As we've recently decided to become sexually intimate after waiting for months, I'm really struggling with body confidence. 
I enjoy a healthy sexual mindset, but right now I'm skittish and hesitant. I'm dodging his desire to try different things. I'm terrified of him seeing me without my clothes. Never one to shy away from my fear. I'm forcing myself each time to be bold and just go for it. I want to have a fun and healthy sex life with him. But my brain is working hard to keep me in a state of shame and fear. I'm so afraid he will be disgusted by my body and it will cause him to end things. Rationally, I wouldn't even hold this against him. What I need him to say is that I'm beautiful to him, all of me, and I need him to say it often for now. I need him to be honest and say that it weirds him out if that's what's true. I need us to address the specific issue at hand. But he is a bit of a closed book emotionally. He wants to be more open, but it frightens him. So unless I ask specific questions, which he always answers thoughtfully and openly, or in this case diplomatically, I'm left to guess. I don't know what to do, Dr. Margaret. I would love to love my body, but I feel like resignation is a more accurate description of how I feel. What I really want is honesty, for better or for worse. This situation is pushing all of my anxiety buttons, and it's really stressing me out. So, she obviously has done some tremendous and wonderful work. Here's my answer. Thanks so much for being a listener and reaching out. You've been on quite a journey, and I'm so impressed with your tenacity and resolve, despite what you consider relapses or needing to recommit to what your particular body seems to ask for in order to have the shape and fitness level you like. I'm still impressed. I'm also glad you're in therapy to help you. There are some questions that come to my mind that you might want to explore. First, what was going on that by the time you were 16 that you had used food in the manner perhaps to comfort or to escape? And how could whatever childhood issues you had be showing their heads now? I ask because it sounds as if this is the first time you've been ready to be truly intimate on many levels. And what can happen, I don't care how many years have gone by, when you have a new safe person, a really, really safe person, then sometimes what comes out are old hurts and traumas that may be replaying and even gather strength. It seems contradictory. If he's safe, why would this happen? But sometimes it's through that very safety that old, old hurt can reemerge. And suddenly, all or most of that confidence that you fought so hard for can seem weirdly more difficult, more present. Second, What's going on that if you ask him to tell you something, and that's what you need to hear, that you also tell yourself, it must not be the way he really feels? On the one hand, you say, I'm so afraid he'll be disgusted by my body and will cause him to end things. And I'm quoting, rationally, I wouldn't even hold it against him. That's your irrational self assuming that he will be disgusted by something he's telling you he appreciates and loves already but you're saying that he's done that only because he hasn't seen you naked. And then you build a case for him leaving. It sounds to me like you've decided that in no way could you be attractive to him, like you're projecting your own feelings onto him in a very well-meaning and even caring way. But before he can learn more about your needs, both sexual and emotional, you're not being honest. And then you even question, maybe he's just being diplomatic. So if he spontaneously says you're beautiful, would you simply tell yourself he's being diplomatic? You're not letting his words be absorbed. You're not letting his truth become your own truth. 
Now, I know that's very difficult, but your own assumptions are getting in the way. I can tell and admire your own work here, that you're in there risking and making yourself vulnerable. But I hear a lack of trust, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was a very old feeling. You see him doing his best, at least for now, with his words. What would have to happen for you to trust what he can and does say? And again, let that be truly observed. No words he could say will fix the hurts that I'm sure were created, knowing how overweight people are treated in our world. But if you let him in a little at a time, maybe you can take steps toward more healing. Good for you that you're such a fighter, and I'm honored that you're a listener, and self-work has been helpful. You put your work to good use. I hope this letter and this email helps many of you because all of us, or so many of us, have body image issues, whether you're obese, whether you hate your neck or your knees or your shoulders, or you don't have six-pack abs, you have no-pack abs. (laughs) Please allow these words to be absorbed by you. Thanks so much for listening to Self Work. I cannot believe we're headed to 150 episodes. There are lots of ways to reach out. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. And don't forget, there's a new way to leave me a message. You can go to the show notes, either at Libsyn or my website at drmargaretrutherford.com. And you can leave me a voice message through SpeakPipe. Now, some of you have been trying, but you are either not speaking loudly enough or it's really short. (laughs) So you have a minute and a half to leave whatever message you want. And I would love to hear your own voices. So go to drmargaretrutherford.com and go to self-work and leave me a message. Or actually, it's in the sidebar as well. I'd love to hear from you. And you can subscribe there, and you'll get a weekly newsletter that gives you my podcast and blog post. It's a really easy way to keep up with self-work. Thank you so much for the ratings and reviews you've left me. I, I went through some of those last episode, so I won't do that today, but I cannot tell you what that means. I truly appreciate hearing from you, and also some of your constructive criticism. That's helpful, too. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'd love to have you there. And about a year and a half ago, I started a closed group on Facebook, and it's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. We're at about 1,200 members now, and it's really active and engaged and supportive. I'm very proud of it and would love for you to join. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Thanks for being here again. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.